Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. My guest today is author Tosca Lee. Tosca originally wanted to be a ballerina, but ended up switching to writing with some help from her dad while she was in college. Since then, she's become a best-selling author of a wide variety of books, including The Line Between and its sequel, A Single Light. Tosca talked with me about her early writing experiences, how the Kindle has changed things for authors, and the eerie feeling of writing a fictional pandemic shortly before an actual one hits, and the one she made up is even scarier than COVID. I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Tosca Lee. Welcome to the podcast, Tosca. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Ah, you're welcome. I'm I'm really, you know, curious to hear your story, especially having read mm-hmm. The Line Between about a month ago. Oh, gosh. But... Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Don't apologize. I'm apologizing because it's a pandemic story. So for anyone listening, that's, yeah, it's this, yeah. <laughs> it, did, it did add an extra dimension to the whole experience, I have to say, but uh-huh. we'll, we'll get to that later. But but yeah, I'm I'm curious to know, you know, how did you how did you get started writing? Was it something you did as a kid or did you find it later or you know, I I was first published in 3rd grade, which I didn't have any idea that that was a weird thing. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't a big deal. It was just a it was a pet newsletter and this is back in the day when do- newsletters were actually printed and they arrived in a real mailbox. Mhm. And um, one of my teachers said, "Why don't you write a an, a little article about your dog passing away because my English bulldog had just died. And so I wrote this like page and a half about my dog and it was very dramatic. And so I was, you know, published and, you know, I, I loved to write and I wrote a lot. I used to win like um, in fourth and fifth grade, I won a young authors competition and, and I totally kind of forgot about that until just recently. Um, I had a friend who illustrated my, my stuff and, and she mentioned it the other day and I was like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. But, you know, my whole driving thing back then was not writing. It was ballet. And I wanted to be a ballerina. I was very serious about it. Um, I danced with some companies as a, a young person. And um, that was my whole life's ambition, really. So writing was really not in the forefront of my mind by any means. Um, that said, I loved reading. And I, I did well with writing, but ballet was the thing. So sometime around when I was 14, I, I tore a muscle and yeah. And, you know, that can really set you back. And, you know, ballet is a very competitive, you know, physical, you know, thing. And, and that was kind of disastrous for me. So, um, you know, the, the plan after that was, okay, well, you you know, you're going to go to college and figure out some other career probably. And, and so I did, I went off to school. I lived, I lived in Nebraska. I live in Nebraska again. Um, I went off to Massachusetts for college and I came back for spring break my first year. And I was talking with my dad about one of my favorite books of all time, which is the Mists of Avalon by Mm. a lady named Marion Zimmer Bradley, big, big, thick book. And it's, um, yeah. (laughs) And I, and I, I loved that, you know, I loved it for that too. Um, but I loved, I loved the characterization of, um, uh, the story is about the women behind King Arthur's throne. Um, and I was talking about this book with my dad and I was talking about how 
a great novel is a lot like a roller coaster. It's got these, you know, twists and turns. They may not, you know, it may not be like thriller type twists and turns, but they're emotional. Mm -hmm. And you get to the end and the first thing you, you want to do is go back and start over because if it's a really good book, you don't want to leave yeah. that story world, right? And this is back in, you know, we didn't have a lot in the way of video games and, you know, all this stuff now. I mean, books were the main escape. Um and I just blurted it out that day. And I said, you know, I think I'd really like to try to write a novel. My dad said, okay, Tosk, I'll make you a deal. I was supposed to work as a bank teller that summer. And I was a terrible bank teller. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not good with numbers and really just wasn't very good at. And so he said, um, all right, I will make you a deal. I will pay you what you would have made working at the bank this summer. If you spend the summer writing your first novel, do it full time and treat it like a job. Wow. And yeah. And I was, that was a no brainer for me. It was like, yeah. Oh, okay. So and that's what I did. And that's how I got started. I wrote my first novel that summer. It's never been published. It was this, you know, I, of course I had to do this like big, heavy, epic story about the neolithic people of stonehenge you know <laughs> nobody told me you know that might be a bit much for your first one or to write in the <laughs> summer a little yeah so so i did it because nobody told me i i couldn't so um i did try to get it published um or i tried to get an agent actually and, and i uh, i i stumbled across the rejection letter from writer's house because of course I had to go big um so I sent it to writer's house and I found that letter not too long ago and it goes like this even after reading the 23 page synopsis never write a 23 page <laughs> synopsis. I mean when I saw that my heart just died died a little bit because I that's just that's a big faux pas but anyway even after reading the 23 page synopsis I'm still not sure what this novel is about your characters are two-dimensional, your plot lacks tension, but it is strangely reminiscent of Clan of the Cave Bear, which was my other favorite novel. <laughs> so all I took away from that is your book is like Clan of the Cave Bear, and maybe you should, you know, keep doing this. And so that's how I got started. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was 1989 that I wrote that first one. So it has really been kind of a journey of, of decades for me. I think it's amazing that that's what you took from that letter. <laughs> and it feels to be kind of like, you know, it's the innocence of not knowing any better. Right. 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 But, mm -hmm. but I mean, it could have so easily stopped you right in your tracks and made you say, cause I thought you were going to say what I took from this was never write anything ever again, nope. which yeah. obviously, you know, you have, but, mm -hmm. but that's, that's amazing. But I also like what you said earlier, which was that you did it because no one told you you couldn't. Yeah, I mean, you don't know any better. And in some ways, ignorance really is bliss, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. But I, you know, I think in some ways, and I never really have thought about this until just this moment when you said that, but I think in some ways, the world of ballet kind of helped prepare me. Um, for that because ballet is it's a very black and white world and writing is not that way but you get rejected a lot mm. you know you audition for things you get rejected you you know nothing is ever quite good enough there's you know perfection is never achieved in ballet so 
I don't think that the letter was super, of course it was disappointing, but I don't think it was as daunting as it might've been had I not had all those years of being told that, you know, basically it's not good enough. So yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) You were sort of, you know, immune to it. Yeah. Of all that. Yeah. Or used to it or something. Yeah. But it just didn't hit you that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was bummed though, because, you know, it's kind of, of course I was hoping. Oh, sure. You know, they'd say this is fabulous and whatever, but you know. (laughs) What did your dad think? You know, he, he just, he's always supported kind of my artistic endeavors. And so he was just like, you know, keep, keep going, you know, try to send it off somewhere else or fix it up or, you know. You know, and he's not a big like fiction reader or anything like that, but he is a big believer. My dad came over in the very early 60s with some money tucked in his sock. Uh, my dad's um, from South Korea mm-hmm. and he came here to go to school and he ended up staying and, and marrying an American lady. And so I think the idea of, you know, kind of big audacious dreams is that's never been a foreign idea to him. That's great. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you certainly, you know, made it worth his money. And you turned out something that size. <laughs> I found it the other day and, you know, I made so many mistakes. You're not, this is back in the day when you print it and you send it mm-hmm. and you're supposed to keep it loose, put it in a box, like a, you know, a Kinko's box of loose paper. You're not supposed to, you know, I bound it. I put a cover on it with a picture of stone, you know, and it's just so cringeworthy today to me, but you know, oh, well, <laughs> but if it hadn't been for that, you wouldn't be where you are. So, you know, we all have, have those little, little memories like that. It was definitely a learning experience for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so did you just sit down eight hours a day? Like you were at work that summer? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was, it was really hard to do. It's, it's hard still to sit down and try to write eight hours a day. Um, you know, because you've got so much stuff vying for your attention. It's hard to just sit in your room and, you know, it's funny because the pandemic has caught us in the middle of a remodel. And so my desk right now is in our bedroom. So I'm working in the bedroom, but you know, that's how I wrote my first novel was at the desk in my bedroom at, at my dad's house. So, you know, I guess there you are. (laughs) Whatever works. Yeah, I mean, you do what you got to do. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. how did writing that first novel change? Did, did it change your the rest of your college years, or did it mm. just kind of propel you as a side project, or how how did that work? You know, uh, I, I kind of decided I, I really wanted to try this writing thing after that. Um, so I I took a lot of English type you know courses. There wasn't a lot in the way of creative writing, so. In, in a lot of ways, the one thing I found really daunting, and, and I know I'm not alone in this, a lot of authors have shared this with me. Um, I, I felt like I was never formally trained, mm-hmm. you know, to do creative writing. I took a short story class. That's all that, um, that we had at that time at Smith College where I went was short stories. So I took that. I learned a little bit from that and, you know, just have kind of had to glean some things here and there along the way. But um, it was always in the back of my mind. I always thought maybe I'll try to fix that novel up. Um, I never did. I did take a job 
right after college where I wrote for a computer magazine, Ooh. which was not, yeah, it was not like the dream, but um, I learned a lot. I was, I was writing professionally and, you know, I learned a lot about the editorial process. I wrote a computer book through that um, experience and process uh, or because of it. So, um, you know, the path is never straight, right? Right. <laughs> it's always, it's always kind of tangential and, and sideways. So, yeah. So I, I knew that I would, I would keep doing it. And it just took several years before I had one that I could finally, you know, push through and see all the way through. And the one that was, became my first novel, I wrote around 98, the first draft, 98, 99. But it didn't get picked up until about 2006, I want to say. And I think it came out in 2007. So, I mean, this is a long time. It was, mm -hmm. you know, several years for me, this process. Well, and I think it's important that people know so, that, you know, that it's not like you just sit down with your laptop at your kitchen table and pound away on the keys for three months. <laughs> and then a year later, your mm -hmm. book comes out. You know, it's almost never mm -hmm. like that. It's almost, I, I do know a couple people like that. And I do know a couple people who have had their first novels accepted um, and who are very successful and beautiful writers. It was not that way for me. Yeah. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the fact yeah. that it took that long, I mean, th there has to have been a fair bit that you learned just through that. Um, I would say so. I mean, I, I, I learned a lot of things along the way that have really helped me out in this career because in between I, um, I did a stint as Mrs. Nebraska. And so I did this pageant thing and then I became a consultant. And so I flew all over the world in a consultant capacity um, working for the Gallup organization. And I learned a lot about um, just my own strengths. I learned a lot about talking to people. I learned a lot about, doing interviews and, you know, getting in front of people. And it all has contributed to this career. Um, just, you know, once again, a very crooked, crooked road. <laughs> Those are two so. very different things too. How did you end up doing a pageant <laughs> and what did you do with Gallup? Yeah. So the pageant thing was somebody just said, you should go try this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I'd never done it before. I didn't grow up doing this. And I just thought, huh, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of a testament to the power of somebody having enough belief in your ability to do something that um, by somebody saying that to you, suddenly something that you never would have thought of becomes a possibility. And, and I love that. And I, I hope that I'm able to you know, speak that kind of possibility into the lives of other people, maybe not about a pageant, but about writing or about re reaching for goals, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. So because there's so much power in somebody saying, I think you should try this, or I think you could do this. So I went and did it. And it was a totally, I, 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 I didn't know what I was doing once again. Um, but it was a really strange means to a really good end because it gave me the opportunity to get out into the community and represent some wonderful charities and to do some um, really meaningful work, you know, so uh, raise money for, for great organizations and 
um, you know, shine a light on some wonderful, you know, ethnic festivals around the state and things like that. So Gallup was another thing where somebody was like, why don't you go try to do that? And I was like, Meh. you know, I, let me see what's possible. And so I, I went through the interview process, just wondering if I could get a job there, if I needed one, you know, I'd been, um, I'd been freelancing for a while and doing some other things. And they said, why don't you come on board? And I said, uh, well, I'll give it a try. <laughs> I, and I hadn't, you know, really meant to go into this world of, you know, management consulting and stuff, but I loved it, you know, for as long as I did it. But there came a point when the writing happened and the first book happened the second. And then I was looking at doing a trilogy with another author where a choice had to be made because I couldn't keep up the writing schedule mm-hmm. and do my job at the same time. So it doesn't sound like it was a tough yeah. choice. It wasn't, but I, the whole, um, the whole health insurance thing, it's Ooh. scary giving up your health insurance. You yeah. It's like in a regular paycheck, you know, so those two things were kind of like, oh, that was the only kind of, you yeah. know, it, it wasn't a choice. It, I knew what I was going to do, but it was scary. It's, so. it's daunting to say the least, even to think yeah, about it, that. It was daunting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's yeah, it like? A leap of faith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so to speak. Yeah. So what's it like co-writing with someone? Mm. Um, I'm actually co-writing a novel right now. So um, I think it's different each time, you know, it's different each partnership. And I know a lot of people who do co-write and I think, I think I can, I think I can say in all honesty that they all have a different process. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's, it's a lot of compromise. It's a lot of um, conversations and, you know, honestly, it is faster, I think, to, at first, especially it's faster to write a book on your own. Mm-hmm. So um, by the time that we got to the third book of the trilogy, we were comfortable enough with one another's strengths and, you know, knew one another as writers well enough to be able to, to write very quickly at that point. But um, I'd say at the beginning, though, it's definitely kind of slow going. And the advice that I give people whenever they're interested in co-writing is to always know what your strengths are um, as a worker but also as an author, you know, know what you're bringing to the table and how that complements the other person. How do you split up the work? Is it like, do you alternate chapters or do you, I mean, that seems way too Mm. easy, I guess, but. Some people do do that. Um, And you can do it that way. And I, I can say that in our trilogy, we, we did each book a little differently. So in the first one, we talked through everything, talked through all the plot points. And then I took the first stab at the, um, the first draft. And then he'd come in and rewrite it. And then I'd go in and rewrite it. And we just kept rewriting one another because we were trying to find a, a common voice mm-hmm. and get that blend. And it became a lot more effortless later on. But the second book, I'd say we both probably shared equal amounts in the first draft but um and then the third book I was doing a lot of the rewriting so I think it just 
you know, the, the secret, I think, is just really what, what works for you and what's comfortable. Um, the partnership I'm in now, uh, he had a first draft and I've gone in and pulled out all the wires and, <laughs> and have started. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm going to redo this and that and this. And, you know, luckily, you know, there's there's such a trust there that it's mm-hmm. like whatever you got to do, you know. So, you know, I've um, I've been very, very blessed in that that partnership do you find that you're basically killing each other's darlings all the time is it is it you know oh yeah I always do this and they're going to come along and they're going to take this part out and vice versa or is it more subtle than that I have killed other authors darlings along the way and I've had a few of my own killed as well but I think when you get to a certain point in your career you you become comfortable holding on to some of those things just loosely because um, you're still emotionally vested in the story, but you're not necessarily so attached to certain things that you wrote anymore. You, you understand that so much of it can be expendable. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that is to say, I mean, every now and then I do write something though. And I'm like, Oh, I, I really like this part or, this part really sums up what's going on in the story or with this character right now perfectly. And, and there are certain things that I really do fight for, but, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, other things you just hold on to loosely. So. That, that seems like a great philosophy for many, many things that I think a lot of us could stand Mm. to learn. Honestly, if, if we didn't learn Mm. that lesson in the last year, I don't know if we ever will, but, but yeah, everything can. Yeah change so quickly yeah all the stuff we took for granted oh definitely and probably will again I suspect as soon as we get out from under this we'll start to all over again even though we feel like we should know better yeah (laughs) I think think that's just whatever the normal is is what we assume it always is yeah right yeah right yeah Mm Yeah. So, so maybe actually, maybe that's a good place to start talking about the line between because I, uh, I read it about yeah. a month ago and, you know, you've already apologized for it. <laughs> so, right. yeah. So I apologize for the story just because I, you know, with it being a pandemic story, I kind of feel like it's the joke that's like too soon or something. <laughs> um, I wrote it before the pandemic, just so everybody knows. I wrote it in 2018. It came out amazing. in 2019. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, and I, I love the story. Um, and I love the main character. So, um, And it is the story of a young woman who has just been kicked out of a doomsday cult that she grew up in for most of her life. And she's having to start over um, in a world that she has, a secular world that she's been taught to regard as evil. And then as this pandemic is marching across the nation, um, it seems a lot like the apocalypse that she's always been taught to expect was coming. And so I really enjoy a good disaster story. I love <laughs> a good, yeah. And I enjoyed the the study of the cults and, you know, and it's interesting how many readers I've learned are really fascinated by cults as well. So I loved all of that. But when the pandemic came out, it was kind of a weird, surreal kind of, huh, thing. So it is a very different disease in my book, I should point yes. out. Yes. <laughs> and I, th- I think that's, um, when I finished it, I commented on Twitter that I never thought that anything could make COVID seem mild, but your book did. 
Yeah, so it's a prion disease um, that has recombined and to become quite infectious. It, it recombines uh, the agent that causes the prion disease has recombined with the flu. And so, and it causes rapid early onset dementia and it's always fatal. So it, it's a very scary disease. It was very scary to consider, but fun to write about. Yeah, that, that was the part that I was like, okay, COVID looks good compared to this. <laughs> Never thought was, I'd say that, but it really does. Yeah, I was like, well, yeah, it was. But, you know, a lot of the stuff is still the same in the story and in real life with COVID. You know, the the distancing, the washing your hands, the need for the hand masks. sanitizer, the masks. And and what's so weird is when the both books, the, the Line Between and its sequel, A Single Light, both came out in 2018. A Single Light came out just like four months before COVID, you know, before the pandemic oh, started. Wow. Yeah. And so as part of the kind of marketing plan, we sent out these bags of goodies to um, like influencers and bookstagrammers and people like that. And we put like little things of hand sanitizer and little, and, and we put surgical masks in, and quarantine <laughs> stickers, like the orange quarantine stickers in these bags. And I've actually had some people say, I had a mask because I got this, this swag bag from you. And that's, I use that mask. <laughs> and that's why we actually had a few masks on hand because we had some left over. So it was like, wow. I don't know. I have to say the part where the masks came in when I, when I first noticed that in the story, I, I read it in very short period of time. I read it in two chunks, like two mm. and a half hours one night and a couple hours the next morning. And, and it was when I got to the masks that I was like, okay, I think all the hair on the back of my head just stood <laughs> up because this is eerie. <laughs> and, you know, even though it's funny because when I picked it up, I didn't really think about the pandemic angle aside from, oh, that's interesting. And it didn't occur to me how, how totally real, real and surreal all at the same time it was going to be mm. to read it. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of pandemic books. Um, this one just kind of happened to, the timing was just weird about it. Um, but you know, the pandemic angle certainly isn't, isn't unique in any way um but yeah the timing was just the weird thing. yeah well and, and when I saw because you have a list of uh references at the end saying basically mm -hmm. any of this could happen because a really cheery note to end on <laughs> <laughs> well and you know it it is a lot like it, it it is quite disastrous in the book because the electrical grid goes down and all this stuff but you know there were some hacks against some of you know our infrastructure Mm -hmm. um, that happened in the pandemic as well um, against, the, I think, the Department of Homeland Services or something. And it was like, you know, that was weird. But at least the grid's not down. So, Right. Yeah. But, you know, and, and I haven't read the second book yet because I needed to take a little space after the first one. But I do <laughs> want to go and, and, and read it. But, mm -hmm. but I think um, one of the articles that you had included in that list I think I read when it first came out because there is, and I'll, I'll find it and I'll add it to the show notes for this, but you know, they have been finding things coming out of the permafrost as the polar ice caps warm up and, and, you know, there's things that are millions of years old that have been safely frozen in there all this time. 
and here we are cluelessly releasing them into the environment because I remember reading that article and thinking oh that sounds absolutely beyond terrifying because yeah who knows what it would be so so yeah I mean it is it is definitely not outside the realm of possibility at all no, and it, actually one of those articles about um, a reindeer carcass that had thawed in the Siberian permafrost um, and happened to be infected with anthrax that got a whole village sick was part of the inspiration for this novel, actually. And then I ended up reading all these other articles about things that have been in the permafrost and melted and, you know, have come out and how they've been able to germinate seeds. And, you know, then there's all these microbes that, you know, some people are calling zombie, zombie microbes and zombie bacteria and all this stuff. They're not really zombie things. They're just, you know, they've been frozen and now, right. you know, it's, it's fascinating. It, it, it really is. It's kind of scary too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely both. <laughs> Definitely yeah. both. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I feel like, you know, when I originally read that article, because it was in, I don't know, three or four years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. It was. And it, it seems like it should have made a bigger splash than it did. (laughs) (laughs) Should have been, hey, we could be doing anything that we are not prepared for to ourselves. And maybe we should pay attention to this. And I Mm. feel like hardly anyone did. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows what's, what's happening with that stuff, there was also an, a really interesting article about a Russian scientist who discovered this, at, you know, millions of years old bacteria from the permafrost, and he injected himself with it. I mean, and I, I did mention that in the story too, but that's based on a real article, and he claims he's never had a flu or anything since. So I, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah. you know. There's, I, I, I try a lot of things in my life, but injecting myself with millions of years old bacteria from the permafrost is not one of them. Not high so. on my list. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. Not at all. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's being devoted to science and then there's just being crazy. And I have to think yeah. that crosses the That's line. That's the mad scientist right there. I, yeah. I yeah. Yeah. For mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> But I, yeah. you know, as, as to the, the cult aspect, you know, I, I taught for about eight years at a local private school here that's a Methodist school. Mm. So there were religion classes mm. and the cult class was always the most popular class. Oh, there is yeah. definitely something about cults that just draws people in, in the popular imagination. Yeah. What, what did you find when you, I mean, I know you've done piles of research on all of this in order to mm. write the book. I mean, what, what did you discover while you were looking into it? Um, you know, a lot of cults have a, you know, a lot of things in common. There's always some kind of charismatic leader. There's always some kind of, you know, uh, love bombing and stuff like that that goes on that gets people to join. You know, it's, it's easy enough when you're on the outside to say, how could you join this? Or why would you become involved with this? Even like, lately with all the news around the Nexium, you know, group and Keith mm-hmm. Ranieri and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, I think human nature is quite consistent and it is that, you know, people want to belong, they want a purpose and they, they want a group that they feel they are a part of um, and cults prey upon that. And also, you know, nobody, nobody goes in trying to join a cult, you know, they, right. they find a place and they find a group of people that, they feel they have something in common with, and it's like the slow process of boiling the frog, basically. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And the, the way they differ is, you know, those details can differ, you know, like the things that are restricted or the things that, you know, what the rules are, but there are always some kind of rules. There's always, you know, kind of this elevation of the main cult leader and, um, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I hate to admit it. <laughs> it's really interesting <laughs> stuff, I have to say. It is. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a reason why people are so fascinated by it. And yet, as mm-hmm. you say, nobody sets out, you know, nobody leaves their house one morning and says, today I'm going to join a cult. I think I'll join a cult today. <laughs> nope, nobody does that. Doesn't happen. So, Mm-mm. So do you think that, are we all equally susceptible to the things that work to draw people in or are there certain people that are more likely to fall for the mm. love bombing and all of that or yeah I don't know I I mean I think that we all have those needs and we all have those desires I think that when people are in kind of uh, transition type phases in their life where they're starting over or they're seeking or searching for something and we all go through those phases I think that's when people are a little bit more susceptible. So, and, you know, like if you, if you already have a strong, you know, foundation of people around you and a a pretty big peer group and a pretty well anchored, you know, family, you know, or peer group, I think maybe, maybe less so, but you never know. I mean, I've been really surprised to read about some of the people um, most recently with Nexium who have been involved with that. So I don't know. And it is a little bit of an unfair question. It occurs to me because you're not a psychologist who might have studied this kind of thing. Yeah. So I I have to preface all of that with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure it was fascinating to read up on it in order to put the whole thing together. And so I'm, my guess, both from the fact that you have worked with other people and you've talked about plotting things and Mm -hmm. just from the amount of research that you had to have done in order to put this book together is that you probably do a lot of plotting in advance, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, well, um, I, I should, because I'm not a <laughs> pantser. So in the writing world, there's pantsers and plotters. Pantsers are people who write by the seat of their pants. And I do have friends who are like that. Um, the most notable example would be my friend, Stephen James, who has written quite a few novels and he's written books on writing and he teaches writing. Um, and I do too. Um, and one thing I think is really important when you teach writing is, um, you know, you help people find their own process and, you know, we don't try to legislate process. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, part of the process for some people is discovering the story, which is the fun part for people like my friend, Steven. For me, when I do that, I just kind of create this giant mess, which is how I wrote my very first novel. I had not a lot of plot really. So when I went into the line between I don't know what happened. I, that was my 10th novel that I was writing for publication. And I think a part of me was just thinking, I've done this so long, it's practically innate now, right? So, you know, I didn't plot quite as much as I probably should have. And what I ended up with was kind of a mess, actually. And um, I ended up having to rewrite it more than normal. So the lesson I learned was I am not my friend, Stephen James, <laughs> and I need to continue to work in the way that I work best, which is um, I needed to have a better outline. So after rewriting that, it actually delayed the publication of the book by uh, about three months because I had to redo this. Um, 
so and I had to launch immediately into the sequel. So I I really really made sure to plot that one appropriately, and it paid off really well. I mean, I I really enjoyed writing the sequel after the frustration of pulling all the wires out on the first one and everything. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the sequel. It flew by. Uh, it happened really fast. You know, I still leave wiggle room for stuff to happen on the fly because it always does. Um, but I learned my lesson. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good lesson to learn. It, you know, <laughs> it's sort of a be true to yourself kind of thing. It's exactly that. And, and like mm. you said, you know, for me, if I don't, if I already know where the story's going, it's no fun to write it. Right, you know, I have yeah. to figure it out along the way. But mm. at the same time, I look at something like the line between and think, you know, you have all of these, I mean, because you're telling some of it in flashback and you're telling some of it in the present. And then you're kind of, you know, there's the whole, where did this come from mystery in with all of it? And I can't mm. even imagine and yet, you know, I think if you are a pantser, you probably could write something like that without an outline. You're just going to go back and make sure that it all fits together later because right, it's right. not like it's one draft and done ever. Mm-hmm. Ever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. But, but yeah, I mean, to me, I kind of look at it and it's, it's again, it's not, it's not a fair comparison because I'm looking at the finished product and not what's, you know, going on behind the scenes. But to me, it's mm-hmm. just like, wow, this is really great because it all, it does all fit together. You know, it all comes together in the moment where it needs to come together. (laughs) (laughs) And and honestly, I mean, I read it in two settings because I, you know, couldn't stop for two hours. Well, I love to hear that. So thank you. (laughs) I finally was like, okay, it's time to go do something else before the day is over because I didn't want to go to sleep with all of that in my head. Oh yeah. But, you know, so I woke up and finished it the next day, but still it, you know it it works yeah so whatever you. you did when you reworked it obviously it, it did what it needed to do it took a few drafts to rework it and there was a lot of tap dancing and reconfiguring going on behind the scenes so I'm glad that I'm glad it's flowing and working that well so thank you <laughs> thank you're you. welcome I mean it really was an experience to go through it but <laughs> but yeah mm. so hmm so when you wrote the second one, you knew what you were doing ahead of time and it kind of flowed. Does it does that affect how you feel about the two of them together as a as a mm. unit? No, I, I it just it, the only thing it affects is my memory of the process, really. <laughs> um and I, I will tell you that I was writing the second one, you know, the so the first one was delayed and I'm I'm immediately writing the second one because it's coming out on the heels of the first one, um, you know, within the same year. And I just remember my confidence had taken quite a hit after the first one, because even though I was happy with the finished product, I, I wasn't feeling very confident mm-hmm. and that's not a good way to go into, you know, yeah. writing. And so I remember at some point I became aware, some point when I was writing the second book, I became aware that the first one was up on uh, NetGalley, which is where, you know, book bloggers and reviewers go to download copies of soon to be released books so they can review them. And I freaked out. (laughs) I went into, I mean, I just, I went into a full-blown panic and I just remember this was late at night. I'm working late, you know, on the sequel. And I just remember thinking, you know, if, if nobody likes the first one, why am I even writing the second one? You know, mm. you know, because yeah, what is this all for? And, um, I, I had been 
you know, kind of going along, having a great time up until that moment. <laughs> and I remember, and I had just started to kind of get my mojo back, you know, and I remember thinking, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look, you know, because people will actually post their reviews in, on NetGalley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, don't look, don't look. And of course I had to go look. And so I go look and, and people are like saying they really enjoyed it and they really liked it. And I was like, so relieved. I got out of my chair <laughs> and got on my knees and put my head on the floor because I was just really, really grateful and relieved. So, Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's that is a serious crisis of confidence moment. <laughs> yeah, there that was right yeah. on the head of a pin. Yeah, it was. And it was it could have if it would have gone the other way, it would have been really tough. So yeah. <laughs> have you dealt with moments like that? I mean, I'm probably not to that degree, but other moments mm-hmm. like that in the past? Yeah, I have. Um, when I was writing the sequel to the progeny, um, there was kind of a seismic shift at, um, the branch of Simon and Schuster that publishes my books. And so it changed my publishing schedule. It changed the people I work with. Um, so much changed and, it, you know, they changed budgets, they change all this stuff. And this is normal. This happens in the publishing industry. Um, but it, it kind of messed with me a little bit and I, it, it did kind of affect me psychologically and, you know, there was a point when my husband, who gives me so much good advice and uh, so much encouragement, you know, just had to say, you know, go have some fun because we read to escape. We write to escape. We write to connect with other people. And, you know, we do it because it's fun. So and I was losing the fun. And yeah. so when he said that, uh, I was like, oh, OK. And that's kind of what happened again, too, with A Single Light, the sequel to The Line Between. Um, you know, fixing the first book after making such a mess was really grueling. And so with the second book, it was like, you have to rediscover the fun. So so what did you do to rediscover the fun? Well, you know, with a single light, one of the things I did is I created this character who I knew would come into the story, but I didn't know much about this character. And, you know, even though I was outlining, I was leaving some room for some mystery. Um, well, he he turned out to be, uh, he's mute, so he doesn't speak, but he has a biting sense of humor. And writing this, this guy who doesn't speak, but is actually very funny, was a challenge and it was fun. And he became one of my favorite characters I've ever written. So that really made it fun. And coming up with some of the scenarios in the book where it's like, ooh, should I or shouldn't I? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's fun. You know, I hate to say it, you know, especially if you're going to, you know, kill people and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But, you know, that was fun. So, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, kind of getting that sense of doodling back. You know, it's like we don't put pressure on ourselves when we're doodling, right? you know, or making fun, you know, things and just kind of trying to get that feeling, you know, back. So, yeah. Actually, you know, when I teach writing, um, I share that my biggest, my number one rule of writing is to write like no one will ever read it because it takes the pressure off. And that's really the only way that I know how to create well and have a good time doing it. So, yeah, Yeah, lowering expectations is incredibly powerful and people resist it so much because they think that that just means that they're going to turn out complete crap. And that's not true. It's, I think it's almost the opposite, actually, mm-hmm. because when you are 
creating freely and audaciously, I think that's when your best stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's when you get into the flow and, and things flow is so come. important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the good part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is though. I don't think you could live there all the time. Mm, yeah. Time sure. passes different. Yeah. It does. And it, it always, you know, whenever I land there for a while at the end of it, I'm like, I'm exhausted. I can't yeah. move. But it's so good. Yeah. But it's great <laughs> while you're in it. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So what have you learned through the teaching that you do? You know, um, I've learned to just take my own advice. Um, this is something my husband reminds me about too. Um, I, the advice that I give when I'm teaching, I think is really solid, but sometimes um, it's easy to get kind of caught up in your own, you know, psychoses, whatever they are. <laughs> um, and so I, I've learned to try to stop and, you know, make sure that I am also applying the same things that I'm that I'm teaching, which is to write like no one will ever read it, um, get the clay on the wheel, which means stop picking at it, just get to the end and you can pick at it later. Um, otherwise, you'll never finish. Right. And, you know, to not be so worried about, you know, the, the 2% of people who don't like your stuff, you know, because those are not the people you're writing for. Right. So, yeah. 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 Not everyone is your audience. Right, right. So if you had stumbled on (laughs) terrible reviews on NetGalley that day, it could have been that they just weren't your audience. That's exactly, you know, and I I remember the first time I I read like a really vitriolic one-star review of one of my books, and like my heart started pounding. And, you know, it's like, it's, you get into this panic thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's a very small percentage. Those are not your people. And when they're really mean, they're telling you more about themselves than they are about your work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that goes for anything, really. When people mm-hmm. are mean, they're they're tipping their hand about what's going on in their own lives. Yes. Yeah. They're they're yeah. showing you what's missing. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So. Yeah. It also occurs to me that your book came out right around the t- same time that the Kindle came out. Mm. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if that had an impact, you know, did, did yeah. you have like a very typical old school traditional publishing experience with the first book and then did things shift or were you kind of like slipstreaming into that whole process or? Yeah, the Kindle. Um, so my very first novel came out in 2007 and the Kindle was like just starting to happen pretty soon after that. So it was not like something in the contract with my very first, you know, I signed for two books, three books, um, but ended up changing publishers before the third. And so I bought those rights back and changed. Um, But when the Kindle came out, it was kind of a, how do we handle this? You know, what percentage are we supposed to be negotiating for or asking for, or, you know, what are the implications? And of course, you know, it makes sense that this happens, you know, the publishing industry seems to follow the music industry, which was, you know, becoming so digital and you had Napster and you had uh, whatever the precursors to Spotify and things like that were. So um, it was just kind of something you'd learn to go with the flow and, you know, 
do the best you can. The Kindle and, you know, digital publishing is, is a challenge in many ways, but it's also really exciting because it's offered so much freedom mm-hmm. um, to so many authors to, you know, control every a- aspect of their book's publication, which is something you don't have with a traditional publisher. Right. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of like, cause I, I hear a lot. I have one book. I self-published it. I'm not super active in that community, but I know that I've, I've heard a lot over the years about how, you know, the Kindle and people will say Amazon in particular, I don't know to what extent it's one or the other have been either really good for authors or really terrible for authors. Mm-hmm. And obviously they both can't be true at the same time, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering like if you've noticed that, I, I don't know, what, what have you noticed? Does it make that much of a difference? The one thing I notice, I mean, I think there's pros and cons all the way, you know, um, but the one thing I've noticed is that the, the pricing um, has kind of been driven down. And the expectation of free content uh, makes it, I think, harder um, harder for authors who may not control the pricing on their books. Um, when you have a traditional publisher, you know they're gonna they're gonna price you know the books at the you know traditional price. Mm-hmm. Um, so my twelve ninety nine Kindle book, for instance, can't compete with a four ninety nine uh, Kindle book on price and. So when readers are shopping, you know, according to price, that can be very difficult to compete with. Um, when my hardcovers come out and if my book comes out in hardcover first, which it does lately, um, hardcovers are not cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, a cheap hardcover can be $24 or 26 but they can be even more than that. Um, and some people, you know, don't want to pay that, you know, for a book or can't pay that for a book. Right. And so... You know, they have to wait for the paperback or or the Kindle to go on $1.99 sale, which is something I ask for often, actually. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the challenges is also just, you know, the, there's so much free content and and it's very hard, I think, sometimes, you know, with the expectation of prices being lower or free mm-hmm. um, when you're doing this for a living. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're we're so spoiled now, and it's like okay, but who can live on ninety nine cent books? Right, you, you know, know unless they're a, selling millions and millions of them. Right, right, and I I love a I love a, a book bargain as much as the next person, you know, and I I love to find those books that are on sale for a dollar ninety nine too, um, but at the same time, you know, this is a year or this is months or a year or years of an author's life that have mm-hmm. gone into creating these stories. I've spent five years on a book before and um, there's a, an incredible amount of work, you know, going yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I feel like, know. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like this is also a good place to say to people, you know, if you want to support your favorite authors, oh, don't yes, just buy please, their books, yeah. but yeah. go in and review them. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Even mm-hmm. even if you're, you know, lukewarm about this particular book, go in and leave a review, leave an honest review. Yeah. Amazon cares more about the number of reviews than they care about what they say. Yeah. And it affects how they promote things. And and trust me, your favorite author will, you know, want to metaphorically get down and kiss your feet for it because yes, it can yeah, be so absolutely. hard to get people to leave a review. 
Yeah. And reviews don't have to be long. They can just be a couple sentences. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be elaborate. You don't have to stress out over it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, for saying that. (laughs) Oh, always, always. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's always been amazing to me. So it's about four and a half years since I self-published my book. And it's been astonishing to me how many people will say, oh, sure, I'll go leave a review. And they never do. Yeah, yeah. And that they're just so important. I mean, it's, it's crazy how, how, how important those reviews are, and how much it affects um, how well your book is noticed or seen and discoverability Mm -hmm. right now is such a huge deal to authors, because there are so many books, and there's so much content available. So those reviews, yeah, if, if you, if you love an author, if you want to support an author, of course, try to buy the book but also leave reviews or also, you know, another great thing is um, request the book at your library too. Cause libraries yeah. are great consumers of books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's huge too. Yeah. And if you got the book from the library and read it there, mm-hmm. go ahead and leave a review as a thank you. Write a review. You know? yeah. 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 And I'm sure that the same is true for musicians and, you know, other similar yeah. sites. I'm sure that it is Absolutely. because as, as the prices go down, they're struggling to find people who are interested and it does help them to do that. Yeah. Massively. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm not blaming people who don't, you know, who say that they'll leave a review and don't, I mean, I think they just forget, you know, it's not the top thing that you normally do, but yeah. it's, it still makes a massive difference. It makes a huge difference. And, you know, it is one more thing to do, you know, on the to-do list. And I completely get that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've told myself, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to start going in and recommending books on BookBub, you know, and I'm going to, and I've just had a terrible time, you know, trying to keep up with it, especially when I'm on deadline or writing. It's like, you know, so I, I understand, but um, if you, if you do love a book, you know, write the review while it's hot and fresh in your mind. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just make it a part of your book reading, music listening process. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. So, what are you working on now? Right now, I'm working on a World War II book uh, with this co-author, and it's the story of three teenage boys um, who enlist uh, in our station in the Philippines right before World War II um, breaks out, and they end up fighting in the Philippines and end up as prisoners of war. So it's based on actual events and uh, inspired by true accounts. Uh, but it is a, it is a novel. So did you have a particular interest in world war two or did you come across this story that inspired you or. You know, this, <laughs> um, this is the one where my co-author had a draft already and invited oh, right. me to come into the process. So I was not even aware of, um, it's about the Bataan Death March. Um, and I was not aware of this chapter uh, of World War II history. And it's a, I think it's a really compelling, very difficult some, at times, um, but very important story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, World War II is not, so, I mean, I've written a lot of ancient history 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, um, but I have not done more recent history. So it's been a real learning experience for me along the way. I bet. Yeah. And that can't possibly be an easy thing to write about. No, but um, it, it is difficult parts that are very grueling. Um, but that I think that's where it becomes really important to dig into the characters and 
and, you know, dig into the moments of beauty when they come along and, you know, things like that. That's a great, a great way to put that. Mm-hmm. Dig into the moments of beauty when they come along. Yeah. I want that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't forget. That's and moments great. of occasional humor, even, you know, I think of movies like Braveheart. Braveheart was a very difficult movie in many ways, because a lot of difficult things happen in that movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thing that kind of helped you through the hard parts of that movie were the, the moments of levity and beauty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, we always need comic relief somewhere along the yeah, line. Yeah, that's the truth. It's just like we have, yeah, it's just like we have in this last year, right? Mm-hmm. Which I'm hoping sooner rather than later we'll feel like we're back to normal. But yeah, I don't absolutely. think we'll know what normal is for a while. I think it's going to be a while. Yeah. And I think I, I noticed that I've kind of forgotten parts of normal. Like, what did I do on the weekends before? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what was it like to drive to work in the morning? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so alien yeah. now. And I wonder if, if normal will really look like we think it will. I think it'll be harder to adjust to some of those things again. And maybe we just won't. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. Maybe we'll say we liked this part. We're going to keep that. Yeah. Yeah. As much as I complain about Zoom and all that stuff, you know, it's been awfully nice to be able to, to do so many things without having to travel for them. Yes. That has been nice. Did you travel a lot for book tours before? I did. And I, I spent 2019, like really hustling a lot. So in, in one sense, last year was kind of a nice, you know, break, but then I did, I have gone a little bit stir crazy, you know, with wanting to get out. So Haven't I'll be, all. <laughs> yeah, I'll be ready. <laughs> I'll be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Oh, thank you so much for That's it for this week. My thanks to Tosca Lee for joining me. I hope you'll go leave a review for a favorite author or musician or for this podcast if you're enjoying it. It has more of an impact than you can imagine, and we truly appreciate every single one. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.